Coming up on today's show, we've talked so much about the crisis in healthcare. The ER plays a big, big role in this. We're using it all wrong. Plus, China warning of an arms race because they're hearing reports that the U.S. might be building the facilities for nuclear-capable jets in Australia. And a really cool conversation about two recent meteor strikes on Mars. Yesterday, we were talking about the healthcare crisis, right? And uh, how the provinces have all come together to press the feds for more money. And we've talked a lot about healthcare, right? And, and the mess that it's become in this province. Now, if it's any comfort, we know we're not alone, right? It's, it's countrywide. It's even farther beyond than that, in fact. Uh, the University of Alberta recently looked into the ER crisis that everybody seems to be dealing with and uh, how we got here and, and some of the problems that it causes downstream, if you will. So let's get some insight on that. We're going to chat with Mohammed Sultani, who's an assistant professor of operations management in the Department of Accounting and Business Analytics at the Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta. Uh, Mohammed, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Good morning, Shay. Glad to be on your show. So let's start here. This, this healthcare crisis, first of all, we, we have this impression that, oh no, Edmonton's in trouble, Alberta's in trouble, Canada's in trouble. No, no, no. It's far wider than that, right? That's completely true. And I just want to add one more point to that, that this is not just because of COVID. We should know that we've been dealing with this situation even before COVID. The healthcare system has been struggling, especially with emergency rooms crowding for many years now. Uh, and just to give you some perspective, a new study shows uh, in the U.S., uh, even before COVID, 90% of emergency rooms reported overcrowding, and about 40% reported crowding in emergency room every day. So that is something that is happening all across North America and many other developed countries. So it's ongoing, it's chronic, it's not new, and it's happening everywhere. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay, so you took a look at how... Um, because of that situation that so many of us are facing in our healthcare systems, what that does to the rest of the system, right? So tell us how you broke that down. What did you look at? Sure. So I think uh, the, th the question that you were looking at was basically driven from the fact that we know emergency rooms are just one part of a larger healthcare system, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, so previous studies have discussed and shown concern about this issue of crowding in emergency rooms and have studied how this is impacting the care that the patient receives uh, in the ED, the practice of physicians, etc. Uh, but what we were interested in was that now that this emergency room is part of this bigger healthcare system, uh, does it really have an impact beyond the emergency room? And the situation that the patients face when they go to the emergency room, does it impact the care that they are going to receive afterwards? Uh, so what we did was we took a look at the patients when they arrived in the AD. We followed them for 30 days after they left the emergency room yeah. and tried to make a connection between the crowding situation at the time of emergency room visit and the care that the patients received after leaving the room. Gotcha. Okay. And the findings show that there's a problem, right? I mean, the fact that the care is what it is in the ER, that causes problems, like you say, up to 30 days after. That's true. So... 
Previously, we know that this is this is having impact on quality of care, on physicians' productivity. But what we are showing here is that when the ED is busier, there is up to 5% increase in patients' use of healthcare system even after they leave the emergency room. They go more often to their family physicians, specialist offices. Uh, imaging service facilities, they come back to the ED. Uh, so part of this can be because of the quality of care that they receive. Yeah. Uh, and another part can be a, a product of behavior by both the physician and the patient at the time of visiting ED at a busy time. Okay, so explain that. What do you mean in terms of the behavior of both the patient and the physician? How does that cause more visits? Sure. So from the physician side, what we are seeing is that when the ED is busier, because they have less time to spend with the patient directly, uh, what they do instead to diagnose the case is they order more tests. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what does this do to the patient? Uh, i give you an example. Uh, one third of all of us, healthy people, uh, we may have tiny cancers in our thyroid, okay? okay? But less than a one in a hundred thousand people are going to die from it. So this is one of the pseudo diseases that many of us may have. We may not be aware of that and we do not do anything about it and it is not going to hurt us. Okay. Okay. Now consider the situation that the physician in the emergency room is ordering many tests for the patient. Yep. So these things are going to come up, right? They are going to identify cases like this that are not treating the patient. Maybe that's not even the main reason to see visiting the ED. Uh, but because they see these issues, they should coordinate a follow-up care with sure. the patient yep. and those sort of stuff. So these are generating some new needs for follow-up care after visiting the ED. Is that a bad thing, though? I mean, uh, wouldn't that be early detection of some things? But like you say, they may not be things that cause any issues, right? Uh, so it, it depends. So we are not claiming that all of them are not necessary. Obviously, some of them are necessary, especially if the patient didn't receive enough care for the main cause of visiting the ED. Yeah, okay. It is necessary for the patient to do uh, follow-up care and just practice continuity of care. Uh, but what we are focusing here is this is not the case for every follow-up care that the patient receives. Many of them uh, are the result of this crowding situation in emergency rooms. Gotcha. Okay. So um, I'm wondering if you've heard from doctors following uh, the release of your findings, what have they had to say about what your study found? Sure. That's, that's an interesting question. So we had a co-author in this study who is himself an emergency medicine physician. And what we did the first time that we uh, were presenting the results of our study, because we wanted to get a sense of how the clinicians feel about this yeah. and what is their reaction. Uh, so the first time that we presented the result was in a meeting with uh, clinicians with different specialties. Uh, we presented the result, and that was an interesting uh, moment because the ED physicians by that time, they already knew they were under pressure uh, and they were communicating this with their non-ED colleagues. Uh, but there was less attention being paid to this probably because non-ED physicians were thinking they are not affected 
themselves. So right. we are putting this pressure uh, on emergency room, and they are dealing with, uh, with this. So this is not uh, what we should be uh, concerned about. Uh, then at that moment, there was this interesting conversation going on between them that the ED physicians telling them, these are the things that we were telling you for a long right. time. <laughs> And now you see these are impacting you as well. So if, as a family physician, you refer your patient to go to the ED because you do not have available time or you need a fast diagnostic test, just this is not the place yeah. to do that yeah. because the patient is coming back making you busier again and again. At the same time, another reason for crowding in emergency rooms uh, is that our inpatient units are busy. So the patient is ready to be admitted from the emergency room to the ward, right? Yeah. Uh, but the ward is busy. They do not have an empty bed or they do not have enough staff to transfer the patient to the ward. Uh, what happens there is that they keep the patient longer in the emergency room. So this creates this crowding in the AD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what we are showing right now is that you are keeping the patients longer in AD, making AD busier, but the physicians are going to admit more patients to the inpatient unit. Many of them are coming back. So this is not something that is going to be resolved. So you put the pressure, you get the pre pressure back from the emergency room. So we're misusing the emergency room altogether. I mean, doctors, exactly. patients, everybody using it as sort of the gateway to the system. And it's not built for that and can't handle that. Exactly. So th that's the funny part here, that we have this term emergency department and emergency room. But yeah. When we look at the patients who are in the emergency department, not necessarily all of them have emergency cases, sure. right? Sure. So one of the main reasons that we are seeing these issues in emergency rooms is that basically it is not used for what it was supposed to be. Uh, so, as you said, it's a gateway for other services, and now we are seeing uh, how this is impacting the whole healthcare system. It makes perfect sense. Um, Mohammed, thank you so much for your time today. Great insight. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Glad you to bet. be on your show. Thanks. That's Mohammed Sultani, an assistant professor of operations management in the Department of Accounting and Business Analytics at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. And I think that's sort of an interesting angle to take. If you want to talk about running a healthcare system, now I'm not saying it's a business like any other business. It's not. But I think, you know, I mean, he's pretty clearly laid out the case that, hey, what you're doing here when it comes to ERs is wrong. And it's causing you problems all the way through the system. And I'm not pointing a finger at ER docs. I'm not even pointing a finger at ERs in Alberta. This is continent-wide, but we've made it sort of the gateway, right? And we know that that's where the bottleneck starts. We've heard it in so many different ways. I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric and saber rattling around this that is definitely a little bit concerning. So how seriously do we need to look at this? The story essentially here is um, broad strokes. The U.S. is going to deploy up to six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers in Australia, according to news reports out of Australia on Monday. Now, in response, China has said that that's really going to affect stability in the region, uh, peace. It could be jeopardized. Uh, they're not happy about it, basically, is the bottom line. So let's find out exactly what's going on. We're going to chat now with John Gretzner, who is a non-executive chair of Intercedent, an Asian-based advisory firm and a fellow with Canadian Global Affairs Institute. John, uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. 
Uh, my pleasure. Good morning. Okay, so let's just um, let's just go through the plan here. What is it exactly that the U.S. has announced they might be doing, or the Australians have announced the U.S. might be doing? Well, the news report suggests that they're preparing an airport uh, to accommodate at least C6, uh, C6 um, high, high-level flying bombers that can or, uh, if required, could be potentially equipped with nuclear weapons. And, and where are they planning to, to set up this base? It's, I mean, they already have a base there, correct? They have a marine base there, and there was an agreement uh, to sell um, eight submarines, which to replace the French contract for uh, right. nuclear submarines for uh, uh, initially the estimate is 70 billion U.S., but there are estimates up to 171 billion U.S. for the life of the program. Gotcha. Okay, so it, would it be fair to characterize this as an expansion of uh, an existing installation? Well, I think uh, the U.S. relations with the Australia, obviously, over historically since World War II or during World War II, they started as a, a security partner in the Asia-Pacific. Um, and one looks at that and from a historical point of view, to a certain extent, uh, China in World War II profited from that partnership. And obviously, the situations have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh but this is an extension of Obama's commitment to put Marines on the ground uh, in Australia and uh, the extension of the contract for the submarines, which obviously has a large commercial benefit to the U.S. Uh, suppliers. But uh, putting in, uh, depending on how you see military assets, they're either a, a contributing factor to uh, tension or they're a deterrent to uh, to uh, war. And, and that goes back to the whole peace with Chamberlain and, and Hitler is yes. a, a debate. And What's the official line from the Aussies in terms of why this is being done and why we're seeing this development? I think the Australian government's position, uh, despite having a f- extremely robust trade position with the uh, People's Republic of China, is that there's concerns about statements by the current leadership of China that they believe that deterrence is the best way to bring stability, and therefore they formed uh, they formed the Quad, which is um, uh, India, Japan, the United States, and Australia, um, to be a defense organization comparable to potentially, depending on how it moves forward in a constructive way, to ideally what NATO did up until the war in Ukraine, which is is an anchor for peace by having a, a an articulated position for for security in the region. Region, but the danger, of course, is misinterpretation on the, on behalf of the Xi government, uh, and uh, and triggering something that's unfortunate either by accident right. or by or by extrapolation. And already, China has said this this is not something that they're comfortable with. Right, their official response is um, this is not a good idea. Basically, right. I don't think China wants to uh, the government of Xi Jinping, and I I, I think we have to learn to talk about countries in terms of their the vested interest of their political leadership of the day rather than categorize them as countries because sure. that yeah. itself yep. is self-prophesizing. Um, we know that in, even in a democracy, you can't hold the people of a country accountable for every action of their leader. In a, in a, so I think we have to look at this in the context of what's in the best interest of the people. Obviously, Jolly Jin, who's the foreign affairs spokesperson for uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China has has been quite clear that they see this as a uh, a way of creating tension and obviously potentially triggering an arm race, which is definitely not in the interest of anyone at this point in time with a larger 
set of global problems from overpopulation, climate change, debt, and obviously we already have one war that's uh, the Fraser Institute uh, calculated that the potential long-term economic losses are or costs are $8.9 trillion to the world economy. And you mentioned an arms race, and, and, and that is what uh, was brought up, that what was mentioned by the foreign ministry spokesperson from the Chinese government saying this could potentially trigger an arms race, right? They may respond that way. That That is the danger. I mean, obviously, military assets in any country have an opportunity cost in terms of uh, other social benefits. Um, they do have a, the benefit of being a technical driver. Um, the microchip, which is the issue of the day with the U.S. Chip Act, goes back to the Kennedy Space Program. Uh, so you can, you know, these are a double-edged uh, uh, path forward. But ideally, the People's Republic of China's leadership understand that one of the contributing factors to the demise of the Soviet Union was, in fact, an arms race because mm-hmm. it disproportionately shifted uh, resources away from the uh, people and, and created opportunities post-Afghanistan uh, for the reforms that led to the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the uh, opportunities to expand uh, what I would describe as a constructive civil society and democracy in Eastern Europe. So, I mean, how concerned are you by this kind of rhetoric? Do you see it as this is rhetoric and we'll see where it plays out, or is this something that we need to be concerned with? I think we have to recognize first, uh, as a country, that we have a national deficit in our uh, independent resources, our academic resources, and our corporate resources in terms of understanding what's going on in Asia-Pacific. And there may be part of that that's being addressed in the Indo-Pacific strategy that the government's looking at. I think we have to be cognizant that Canada is a unique country and that we are immune in our own minds, but perhaps not in reality from issues offshore. And I think, therefore, we have to pay attention. And I would argue that we have to have have a more proactive uh, engagement. Uh, I think we have foreign policy goals, but I would describe personally been advocating in some of what I write about what I call tactical engagement or an actual action plan that could be including improving civil society in the 12 Pacific Island nations that are in play between China and Australia and the U.S. in terms of hearts and minds for authoritarian mm-hmm. government versus democracy. That could be engagement and mitigation of the tensions in the Korean Peninsula. That can be looking for a solution for restoration of democracy and, and solving the Rakhine problem and uh, in Myanmar or, or historically Burma. and But I think we can't sit back anymore and have an underfunded uh, uh, by G, uh, G20 targets or OECD targets for foreign development assistance. We can't sit back and not recognize that we have a proud military tradition that needs to be upgraded and both... Uh, and possibly look at the next generation of opportunities and challenges rather than historic ones. Um, And we have to look at our own position in the Arctic from our point of view of sovereignty. So it's a complicated issue, but I think that we, you know, the solution comes from, I think, that Parliament and provincial governments have to start looking outward as recognizing that the livelihood of the Canadian people is tied to... uh, uh, world stability and world peace and and obviously even you know uh, where i am in vancouver we've just come off in a historic drought that 
potentially is tied to to climate change, whether there's global warming or not, I don't want to get into, but there's definitely an impact on climate change uh, short term that we have to understand. And I think, unfortunately, you know, when you start deploying military assets on both sides of uh, the Asia-Pacific uh, region, that you're potentially going to miss the important issues that are going to actually uh, set the tone and the, the prosperity for the next 30 years. But like you say, it's so important, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think a lot of Canadians have confidence that we're doing what we need to be doing, that we're being as proactive as obviously you say we should be. So, I mean, that needs to be something that we talk about more often. Yeah, I think we have to. If you, uh, it's quite a popular TV show, the beginning of Aaron Sorkin's newsroom, where he recognized that uh, in a long litany of concerns that America is not the greatest place, uh, and uh, we have to be honest about uh, Canada, not in terms of, I think, our domestic life, because we are pretty lucky to be living here or mm-hmm, come from mm-hmm. here or move, move move here by anybody's standards historically or even comparatively to the other 190 countries in the world, 192 countries in the world. But I think we have to be objective about really that we're not pulling our weight, uh, both in terms of ideas and solutions in terms of military assets and development assistance. Uh, Bill Gates gives more money in development assistance offshore than Canada does. Wow. Wow. Pretty stark assessment, but I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, John. And we've talked about it on the show before, and uh, I look forward to having you back, and we'll talk about it again as we go along. Thank you, sir. You have a great week, and enjoy Edmonton. It's a lovely town. Thank you very much. Uh, John Gretzner, non-executive chair of Intercedent, an Asian-based advisory firm and a fellow of Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Space, the final frontier. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Yeah, we haven't talked about space in a while. We're going to have a little space segment here. Yesterday, astronomers um, managed to find three near-Earth asteroids. NEAs, including one that's about a mile wide, a kilometer and a half wide. They were all hiding in the blinding glare of our own sun. So these asteroids, uh, all of them, would be more than big enough to do catastrophic damage should they collide with a planet, including good old Earth. But... Good news here. There is currently no predicted close approaches between any of them and our planet, at least not in the foreseeable future. I was kind of surprised that astronomers have discovered and cataloged thousands of near-Earth asteroids. Okay, that makes sense. But we have blind spots, particularly asteroids that uh, are in close to the sun, or at least are you know in the glare of the sun from our vantage point. Um, and you might remember the one that exploded over Russia in 2013. You saw the dash cam footage. Uh, that one was a previously undiscovered asteroid that came from behind the sun, taking astronomers by surprise. So interesting story yesterday. Another interesting story is some asteroids that we were able to sort of track, at least what happened, what they did, and some of the uh, impacts that they had. This was on Mars, two of them. And um, two of the biggest meteor strikes ever recorded, and we had an opportunity to sort of study them and analyze. Well, we didn't, but I got a guy who did, Bruce Bannard of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the lander's chief scientist took part in these studies um, with NASA. Bruce, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. 
Oh, I'm glad to be here. So we're basically talking about two NASA spacecraft that have been monitoring Mars that recorded this. First of all, what spacecraft are we talking about? There's a rover, I know about that, but there's more? Yeah, well, the, the if you have a spacecraft on the surface, which is not a rover, it just uh, sits in the same place. It's called InSight. Okay. Uh, and that's one of the, the uh, spacecraft that we use to uh, study this these these, uh, these impacts. And the other one is an orbiter that's been in orbit around Mars for 16 years now. It's called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or we just call it MRO for short. Gotcha. Okay, so the meteor strikes, when did they occur? Like, when did this happen? Well, the first one that we found out about actually occurred last Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th of, la- of, of uh, 2021. Um, and uh, one of the, th- the instruments we have on this lander is a seismometer. It's actually the main instrument we have on there, and we're uh, using it to uh, uh, record Mars quakes and uh, understand more about the geological activity and structure of Mars. So we saw this, what we thought was a Mars quake, you know, it's a, you know, the, the ground was, was shaking and wiggling and we recorded it uh, on the on the spacecraft and sent the information back down to, to, to Earth. And at that point, that was one of the largest, I think it was the third, second or third largest Mars quake that we'd seen. And we were pretty happy about that. And we were, you know, doing our little studies on it. And then um, a couple of months later, completely independently, uh, some of the scientists on, on MRO were taking some pictures of Mars and they saw a crater, or there wasn't a crater before. Sometimes they take a picture of the same area twice um, to get uh, stereo uh, photos. They take it from two different angles and they can make a 3D uh, picture of the surface. So uh, they had taken a picture about a year ago and then they came back again and took another picture and there was a <laughs> uh, 500 foot, 150 meter crater uh, where there wasn't one before. Um, and they said, wow, that's that's a big one. They'd never seen one that big that it actually happened. They'd seen ones that were, you know, maybe uh, 20, maybe even 50 meters across the biggest, but never a 150-meter one. Um, and so they said, well, this is so big that we might be able to see it with one of our other cameras. They have another camera that takes uh, a, a global picture every day. Uh, they take, take a, a few strips for, for weather uh, prediction on Mars. They actually do have a weather satellite on Mars, just like at the Earth. And they say, okay, they looked through that, and it was big enough that they could actually see it on their weather, uh, their weather image. And they could see it, was, uh, it wasn't there on uh, December 23rd, and it was there on the December 24th. So they knew that it had happened, you know, in that one-day yeah. period. And they remembered that they'd heard, uh, you know, uh, a report from the, from the InSight team about this, this uh, Mars quake that had happened at the same time. And they said, oh, wow, that's either that's a really big coincidence or this is something really interesting. So uh, the two teams contacted each other and uh, the, uh, the, 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 Mars, the, the seismologist on InSight had an estimate of the location of their, their Mars quake. They could, they could tell from the, the uh, analyzing the, the signal, you know, where it had come from, you know, within a few hundred kilometers. Uh, and that turned out to be right on top of where this crater was. And so uh, wow. they did some more looking at the information and, uh, Finally, we were able to convince themselves and, and um, everybody else that, that this was the same thing. What can we learn from the data that you just talked about? First of all, do we know how big these meteors were? Do we know, I mean, does that tell us what we need to prepare for down here on Earth? I mean, what do we do with this information that we've gleaned? Well, what it's, what it's helping us to do is, is learn about how often these uh, 
these asteroids, small asteroids or large meteorites uh, hit Mars. And that helps us understand the, the distribution across the solar system. We actually measure these things coming into Earth's atmosphere all the time. There's, you know, hundreds or thousands of them that, that come into the Earth's atmosphere and they burn up. Um, in fact, this one we think was somewhere between, oh, five and, and, and maybe 20 meters across, five, five to 15 meters that's across. That's a fair size. That's a fair size, yeah. And uh, that's, that's what it takes to make, you know, uh, a, a crater the size of a, of a football stadium, right? Yeah. So, but on the Earth, it probably would have burned up. In fact, they think that that's about the size of that, uh, that fireball that you were talking about that, uh, that occurred over Russia a, a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so the Earth actually, it protects us from a lot of these things. Uh, but uh, something, something bigger, the kinds of, uh, of uh, asteroids that uh, you're talking about also in the, the earlier segment that we're hiding in the Earth's glare, um, those will punch right through the atmosphere. But So we're just trying to understand the distribution of these objects uh, throughout the solar system so that we can understand more, you know, what the risks are to Earth and, and in, in the future, you know, when astronauts go to Mars, what the risks are there. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And you make a good point because the atmosphere on Mars is so much thinner than it is on Earth. What happens there is probably way more severe than what would happen with the exact same projectile here down on Earth, right? Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Bruce, I, I thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you, sir. That is Bruce Bannard, who uh, is with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Chief scientist on that Mars lander he was talking about. How cool is that, hey? Uh, and he took part in these studies. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.